Hola, hola Charlito. Charlito. Hola Charlie. to see you. I know, it's been a while. It's been a while. How long has it been? Well, I think we've run into each other in event spaces. Right, we have. We saw, you know what, speaking of, we saw each other at the Build the Bench. Yes, yes. Event. Shout out to Andre Richardson. Yes. Yes. It was a great event. Yes, it was. It was right pre-COVID too. Like, I want to say not too far before COVID. You're right. You're right. Yeah. It seemed like it was like a decade ago. I, it, literally, this is the longest year ever. <laughs> For real. <laughs> Listen, I, like, how have you been dealing with it? Because everyone, when I speak to folks about COVID, everyone seemed to be dealing with it differently. Mm-hmm. How have you been dealing with it? I mean, I, think I, I would be lying if I didn't say there were ebbs and flows and highs and lows. I think that's, that's the nature of this year. Right. Um, it is forcing me to confront my shadow uh, and, and to do some deeper personal healing work. That I will say. So now I don't have the distraction of uh, being in several spaces mm-hmm. or, or being around other people or being focused on other things. Now I'm literally in a confined space with all of the layers of my identity uh, and having to do the work on my own. Wow. So I think that has been for me uh, where the ebbs and flows come in. Right, right. So unpacking and processing whenever I'm triggered. What's that about? What does that really look like? What does that mean? Um, and also just coping with not... I'm a social person. Right. So coping with not seeing people and being able to touch and hug and, yeah. and be in intimate spaces has, has been challenging at times. Yeah. Has yeah. been challenging. On the flip of that, uh, I'm doing the most healing work... Um, I can't say ever because I've always been committed to my healing. Um, but in this short of a time period, mm. I would say it has definitely intensified wow. the healing process. Well, you definitely had time. Yes. Right? Yeah. We've all had time. Yeah. And like, you know, you and I mentioned before, if if you didn't come out of this different, then something is wrong with you. Yeah, you weren't focused on doing the work right. that was in front of you. I mean, and it doesn't mean that you have to become a radically different person either, right? I, I think, too, people are like, I have a bucket, a list of 20 things I need to do and I got to get all 20 things done um, and I should get it done. Well, right. that's judgment. Release yeah. judgment. Yeah. Um, maybe the one thing you need to get done is just taking care of yourself and loving yourself. Right. right. And if you can do that, that's a huge commitment and shift. And exactly. Like, so, so, yeah, I think it varies. It doesn't have to be so structured and uh, and uptight as sometimes people make it. Right. You know, that's why that's why I emphasize different. Right. Not more productive, not, uh, you know, financially better, well off. It was more about just like different. Like, what did you take from these lessons? Like the world, the universe, not to sound so you know esoteric, but, the, you know, the universe is providing you uh, with these gems, you Absolutely. know, and, you know, they're dismantling the social constructs for you. They're saying, yeah. you know what, what you thought is stability is not right what you thought the government was for you it is not 
you know, um, what you thought, you know, what you were capable of or whether you can do without or you couldn't do without, that itself is a self-imposed construct. You can actually do less with more. You can actually do okay yeah. if you're not going out every weekend. And, and that's great. But health-wise, you're okay. Your family's okay. Yeah, yeah thankfully. Okay. Uh, we, we've all kind of maintained social distancing right. and, you know, wearing masks and getting checked up on um, for sure, for sure. So I'm super grateful for that. I mean, speaking, though, about uh, the social constructs, because mm-hmm. I do think the other thing about this particular moment in time is one, we gave the earth some time to heal uh, with all of us not being on the roads and not being out and about the earth had some time to rejuvenate which is a gift onto itself if we're thinking about the impact that climate change will have for generations to come and on the planet Right. so that's kind of one thing I think the other thing though is it has revealed the underbelly of America um, and how racism and social inequities are real there's mm-hmm. no denying or negating it now. And because people aren't distracted by so many things, they can better internalize that. Right. And so what I've been telling folks is this might be the first time that I've seen in modern day history, white folks have an awakening. Right. This is still a thing, not for people of color, especially right. not for black or black or indigenous folks in this country. But for white folks, it's like, oh, I can't avoid it anymore. Right. Right. I get it. And there's something to be said that if we are going to really undo the cut, we need everybody to understand that and to put in the work to undo it. Right, right. And, you know, and that's a very personal process, especially, like, if you're, I would imagine, because I'm not a white person, right, but especially if you're a white person and you're seeing that racism does exist to that extent, you know, and you're not even touching on, actually, we did have an example of the Central Park incident where someone, you know, a white woman who is apparently uh, liberal, you know, voted Democrat, um, showed signs of uh, racism by, oh, yeah. by targeting this, this, black, this black bird watcher. And, um, and I think incidents like that also speak to being white in this country where it's like, oh, like, it's not only me treating people this way or or saying this in public or voting for the Republican Party, like there's probably things about myself that I do, things that I get away with may have some racial bias um, within it. To actually ask themselves, like, am I in this position of privilege because of my own merit? Is that person not in that position of privilege because of their lack of merit? It It just helps people to really, or it should challenge people to really understand how they play a role in this society. Oh, they absolutely. Well, people, I mean, I think the other thing that's become obvious is that these institutions are so deeply ingrained in the in the DNA of, legis, of legislative systems, right, of policies and practices, that it is so hard to undo. That's the institutional right. nature of racism. Right. Right. But the other thing is that people replicate institutional racism, that it requires people to keep it intact, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when folks aren't doing their personal work, they do run the risk of replicating bias within practice and policy. Mm. And, and when you start to legislate policy, that's where it gets dangerous. Right. Uh, but also, I think to name, too, what you're hinting at, even with white liberals, sometimes they can be the most problematic, to be frank. 
And I think Robin D'Angelo did a great job at highlighting that in white fragility. Mm. It's talking about that sometimes the most problematic folks in this conversation are white liberals because they think they're doing, they're showing up a certain kind of a way and being, they're not managing the ways in which that they can create harm. Right. Um, so, so I think there, there has been more research and literature to really kind of push that, uh, to challenge white liberals to think about, well, how are you really showing up? Right, right. How are you really showing up? And are you thinking about the micro and macro ways in which um, you even sometimes center your narrative, uh, if that makes sense? To undo racism and systemic racism, in some ways, we have to uh, decenter whiteness, not... And in some ways, we have to put a spotlight on it so people can understand it. Right. To say, well, this is what it is. This is how you're creating harm. And you should be mindful of that practice. And now let's decenter it and, and center a multiracial kind of context. But that even centers uh, the most vulnerable or historically marginalized in this country, which would be black and indigenous folks. Right. So we have to center the most vulnerable, the most historically marginalized to be able to create a system that can fully capture everyone. And it's not until you do that that you're actually going to leave people out. Right. So the way, uh, and that's getting into some of intersectionality, which is Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, and, the, and she even talks about it's not just black folks, but are we centering black women? And if I were to add another layer, what does it look like to center black trans women? Mm-hmm. So there are many kind of ways to center folks who often get left out. Right. And if, again, if you're not doing that, your container will always be a bit limited. Right, right. And with the elections coming up, you know, how important is who we have next as president to uh, promote this agenda of racial gender sensitivity training? Uh, Well, we all know that the current commander-in-chief voted to or he banned uh, federal yeah he he put a federal ban on on racial sensitivity training yes yeah i saw that i mean also called out the 1619 project and said he wouldn't fund folks who were using it in schools and please explain Um, what that is oh yeah the 16 uh, so nicole hannah jones from the new york times really spearheaded this amazing project 1619 Project is really to talk about the history of, well, is about the history of slavery in the Americas. Uh, Well, not the Americas, the United States, because we all know slavery in the Americas started earlier uh, with the Spaniards. So, yes. So he, I think he mentioned that he also wanted to ban funding for schools who supported the 1619 Project. Um, I don't think it's just racial sensitivity. Like, what's at stake in this election is... uh, the heart of democracy. It is also anything that has to do with racial or social justice in many ways. Um, Because LGBTQ rights are at risk, women's rights are at risk, immigrants' uh, rights are at even greater risk, Um, Black Lives Matter, you know, like all of these things are at risk. risk. Um, So this next election is is a, a defining one. For our generation. Um, and I will say I'm very hopeful that the number of people who've gone out to do early voting is the highest that we have seen right. um, ever in this country. So I think that gives me some some hope. Um, 
But again, here's the thing. I don't know that we would have come to this moment of reckoning had we not had a Trump in office. Right. I'm not justifying Trump. Um, it's a Diana the person. I'm just going to separate uh, partisan politics. Does not believe in his platform. And, and I'm talking about myself in third person because I'm mindful of my job. I'm not supposed to talk. Uh, we're supposed to be nonpartisan. Gotcha. But this is not related to work. It's Diana the person. <laughs> um, so he has essentially elevated divisiveness in this country to a degree. We've seen uh, KKK uh, enrollment rates go up. There were there was even like folks who infiltrated the FBI, right. who were like I mean the number of ways in which <laughs> governor kidnapping pots right right QAnon like I mean wild yeah. um, this has never been seen before it, it's to a degree that it's again you can't avoid it it's like this is what it is and this this is directly connected though to white fear right white fear of losing power of course you know how many times. As he said to white women, when are you going to start liking me? I saved your neighborhoods, you know? Yeah. I saved your neighborhoods from these black and brown folks coming in. Yeah. You know, because what he's done with the housing, with the housing policies, um, has been extremely detrimental to uh, communities of color. Yeah. I know, mean, and their progression. Yeah. I think, you know, what was interesting in the 2016 election, you know, I had a, a watch party in my old apartment. I used to live in Brooklyn at that time. And we were all there, like, we were like, okay, maybe we have hope. And then <laughs> it kind of hit, um, we lost Florida. Mm-hmm. And then we started to lose some Senate seats. And uh, it, it, the reality started to gradually sink in for me. Immediately, I was like, if we lose the Senate, the Congress, and the, the presidency, we will lose the Supreme Court. Right. And that means that every single branch of power in this country will be controlled by one party. That was the moment I freaked out in 2016. It became so real to me that we were going to undo civil rights legislation and the work that folks had done and fought for, and particularly like black communities who really led the pathway for civil rights. Right. we were going to go back decades. And sure enough, what is being created now is the groundwork to take us back decades. Mm-hmm. So what I'm getting from this is that you think voting is important. Yes, voting is absolutely imperative. I mean, we uh, plan your vote. I think that's the slogan for this year. Right. Um, Have you I, voted already? I'm voting in person. I don't know that I personally trust uh, mm. mailing in a ballot. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I'm voting in person on November 3rd, Election Day. Yeah, in two days, yeah. no, three days. Yeah, yeah. I think, so what's interesting though even about this um, is people think their vote doesn't matter. And also to mention there are local elections on your ballot, so please also do your homework before you walk into the, the location to make sure that you're capturing who else is on the ballot. Uh, the other thing I think folks uh, generally don't pay attention to is how did this person historically vote on uh, when they were in office right. for uh, legislative items that impact communities of color? Because sometimes people can be single-issue voters. Um, 
And this is sometimes the disconnect with white women feminism, right? And that we hear black women and women of color talk about like, your feminism has not historically accounted for me or my narrative because they can vote in a way that where they negate their white privilege right. uh, and, and underscore one, one element of it. Um, so this is where I'm encouraged, but like, do not vote on single issue, folks. Like, make sure that you're looking at the candidates' full records. That's going to be so critical. Yeah. So so critical. Um, so I would say the other thing folks don't realize about their vote: that you can't just show up the day of the election and vote and say, "I've done my job. I've done my part." It is completely up to this elected official. No, everybody has to be accountable to someone. And the reality is a lot of elected officials end up being accountable to lobbyists who fund their campaigns because they want to get reelected. And to get reelected, you need money in this system. But as, as a person who's done advocacy work, constituents have so much more power than they're, than they realize. the, The people of a democracy are a sleeping giant, literally. Meaning that if a bunch of y'all who vote in one particular district show up to your council member or your senator or your congressman, state senator or federal, if you show up to their office and you're a voting constituent in their district, they have to listen to you. Mm -hmm. If you're also a voting constituent, you yield more power because they anticipate and assume that you're going to show up to the polls again. So are you going to the the town halls these elected officials are hosting? Are you showing up to community board meetings? Are you maybe even running for a community board position, which is localized politics? Matter just as much as federal and state. So I think there, it's again, it's not just showing up the day that you vote. It's holding your elected officials accountable throughout. It's getting involved in local politics. It's really also activating your neighbors to do the same thing. Right, right. Such an important message there. Just to bring you back to prior to 2016, uh, when Obama was in office. Yeah. How did that help your work? And again, we haven't even gotten to the amazing work that you do. Um, So right now you're working at Good Shepherd, right? Please tell us, tell us what you do. So I um, I'm I oversee the agency's anti-racism and equity work, mm. and so largely that takes on an agency-wide uh, lens. Essentially, I'm aiming to help Good Shepherd Services become an anti-racist, multicultural organization, and that means taking a very close look at policies and practices that replicate kind of racist ideologies and undoing them and creating new ones mm. um, that would benefit all staff across the agency. If we can make the agency an anti-racist multicultural organization, we can also, that work then also translates to the participants and communities we work with. Um, So recently, I'll give an example, in November 2019, we changed our mission statement. Uh, To be guided by racial and social justice, we help children, youth, and families thrive and succeed. That was a big shift. Before, like, all of this attention in the past eight months, we've been doing Mm -hmm. the work to make sure that we are leaning into what does it mean to evolve as an agency. Mm. You know, you've always, ever since I've known you, before you started working for Good Shepherd and doing this work, you've always been a part of the 
I give a fuck business, right? Yes. <laughs> Dealing, you know, that's what I call it. Because when I first met you, I met you when you were working for Exalt, right? Which is yes. a also a nonprofit organization, yes. mm -hmm. uh, but they cater specifically with uh, young people. Yes, okay. yeah, well, in the juvenile justice in system. In the juvenile justice system. And uh, they were either mandated by court or they voluntarily enrolled themselves in the programs? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Or, okay. you know, they, they were in the thick of a, a trial or a situation. Right. And uh, this was a condition to help support them. So right. it wasn't necessarily the mandate. They voluntarily did it so they could lessen their sentence. Right. Or right. eliminate their sentence at the end of the process. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and that's where I met you because I uh, obviously, you know, I do criminal defense and, and, um, and there was a case where I had a client, um, getting services at the, at that program. How would you describe what you saw there? Uh, so that was right for me. That was 2013. I had gone back to NYU to get my mat, no, I was well after my. No, no, that was before two thousand thirteen. Sorry, I'm processing. That. that was two thousand eleven. Yeah, oh. because I I had yeah. graduated in two thousand and ten, and then I started working around two thousand eleven or so, and um, and I had a client uh, when I was a young attorney. Right. And, and he was going to that program, so it was like two thousand eleven or so. Yeah, yeah, probably yes. Yeah. And so I um. I had also finished up uh, grad school about two years before that, too. All my coursework, not my, my final thesis mm. that held up the actual graduation date. Mm. Um, yeah, so that makes sense. So for me, I was also, I wasn't new to work. I had been working already for a few years, but it was the idea of... Um, Coming back to work with kids in the justice system. I actually had never worked with kids in the justice system. Let me correct that. So I had went to an Angela Davis talk. Mm. And, you know, she spends a lot of time talking about criminal justice reform and uh, being a prison abolitionist. Yes. Dismantling, like, the prison industrial complex. And I was so inspired by that talk that I said, well, maybe I need to be working with young people in the juvenile justice system. I transparently had avoided that for a long time uh, because my father was incarcerated and so were my uncles and so my relationship to the criminal justice system was very personal mm. uh, and for me I wanted to avoid anything initially that would remind me of that trauma and that separation but in that moment watching Angela Davis I said oh why am I avoiding this maybe it's time to, to, to dive deep and jump in so what you put out, you attract. So then I found out about Exalt Youth. And the thing that I also really loved about it was that they were using culturally responsive pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Meaning that they weren't teaching some standard curriculum from a school book. That they were teaching kids uh, about uh, systemic oppression but using hip-hop. Okay. Right? Like they were... It was much more creative and much more relevant mm. for the young people in the program. Like, we were talking about toxic masculinity before that was, like, the, the term, mm. right? Um, so I loved, loved the program. But I will tell you, because I was personally very much invested, it re-triggered my own trauma, if that makes sense. And so it became really hard for me to stay in the work. Mm -hmm. So I stayed there for a couple of years and left, not because I didn't love it, 
but because I knew I needed to create some distance and space. Um, Can I ask, yeah. you know, and please, you know, if you're able to share, what about that re-triggered? Was it that yeah. many of them were, were facing incarceration sentences, even though they were, uh, you know, involved in this immersion program where they were being taught to critically think, to solve problems, to essentially become better individuals. Absolutely. I mean, some of them stayed out, but, you know, it's kind of like any program uh, with any young person or any person who is, who, any person who experiences abandonment and rejection and disappointment, um, and these young people experience abandonment by the system, rejection by the system, right? They were disappointed by the system. People saw them and treated them as adults because they were black and brown. Mm -hmm. They didn't get to be young people who made mistakes and were given second chances. Um, and they and everywhere they heard that messaging. They heard it in school, so they got suspended at higher rates. They, you know, it, it became a, a, a constant. So what do you then do? You end up finding power because uh, you want to feel good in some way, shape, or form in other spaces. Right? So then you might become the class clown or mm -hmm. you might get involved right. in a gang or you might get involved because a gang is essentially a brotherhood. That's what it is. Or a sisterhood. And that gives you some sense of connection and some sense of power. Um, so all that to say is when you are, when you've experienced that, Right. And, and then the one bit of power and that you have in that construct, someone takes it away and gives you some new tools. But this whole new these new tools are, are a whole new system. It's a whole new way of thinking and feeling. And we're also saying you're graduating. Now you have to implement these tools on your own. That's scary. Very scary. And that's scary for any adult. Right. How many people sabotage relationships? Because... They don't think they're worthy, and they haven't fully done the work around self-worth. Right. So, so I think not all the time, they all didn't, you know, because Exalt has really good numbers, but the ones that hit me the hardest were the ones that were, uh, you know, arrested and incarcerated. We would graduate them from the program, and then they would get arrested the next day. Right. Uh, and I remember the moment where I had, like, my final, like, it was, like, one of the participants in the program who was one of the toughest young people I had ever worked with. I was in court. His family was in court and with his girlfriend who was pregnant. And he was getting taken away. And I had to maintain all my willpower to not cry and make it about me mm -hmm. to keep my cool for the family. But he has so much, so much potential and promise. And only, again, did what he knew. The judge was kind that day because of Exalt's testimony, because we used to provide testimony for participants. The judge didn't handcuff him in front of his family. But when I tell you I left that courthouse, I was a wreck when I, when mm -hmm. I came home. I was like, that's, that's heavy, that's intense. And then, you know, again, because they have so many needs and, and they just want to be seen and feel loved, these young right. people. I right. think adults just want that, too. And I think adults forget that. Forget that young people just want the same thing, to be seen, to be, feel loved, and to, you know, to feel valued. So 
it was those moments where things would unravel that I realized I needed to create some distance mm. for my own self. Yeah. Um, it's heavy work. Yeah. It's heavy work, and it's heavier when you realize that not only does the criminal justice system fail to take into consideration this holistic view that you just expressed, but that they do not understand that this, for many of these young men or young women, right, mm -hmm. certain, certain times, that this is the first time that they've been exposed to some tool educationally, academically, to help them cope with, with their lives, to help them move forward, um, to prepare them for the job market, to, you know, give them a different perspective on how to deal with stress and how to, you know, to deal with other people, you know, that can be overwhelming for anyone. Absolutely. Let alone someone that has never had the resources. Right. You know, so, you know, some of the work that I do with young men, uh, sometimes, you know, there's days where I'm like, you know what, I need to ch take a chill. Right. Chill. And let me uh, not talk to anyone for about 24 to 48 hours uh, because I'm upset. And I'm upset right. in that uh, many of these judges are more concerned with uh, making sure that the cases get either resolved or disposed or uh, the cases get finished as opposed to like really taking the time to um, come up with a creative solution to uh, many of these criminal cases. Right. You know, like if you really want to benefit society uh, you want to stop whatever is happening yeah. right and the only way you do that is through education and you re you rehabilitate through education you teach them then they're a part of an, a program like exalt like you mentioned and they're doing well and all of a sudden they're getting their resume printed you know they never in their lives had a mentor now they have access to a mentor right and they think that you know what maybe this world isn't yeah against me maybe i can succeed uh maybe there are people that truly believe in me and that i want to prove them right right i want to prove them right that i can do something for myself that i can be someone for you know for you to go through that process and then have that snatched away from you because of a short-sighted judge or a short-sighted right. prosecutor is extremely painful and i don't think uh people doing the work truly understand the toll that it has on them Unless you've done the work on yourself to know whether, you know, you're being affected to that extent or not. But anyway, I'm curious to know whether your childhood influenced what you do now. You know, as far as you said that the Exalt program triggered you, you know, what you were doing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the personal is political. I can't remember who said that as a quote. Um, but I definitely think the personal is political. There's no way around that. Uh, people say, oh, there's su a, a such thing as objectivity, and I, I don't believe that. That's actually a white supremacy culture norm mm. is objectivity. Uh, but the reality is everything is, is somewhat subjective because we're all born into a construct that teaches us how to be in the world. And I, you know, I was born in East New York, Brooklyn, um, and then lived there until I was about 12 or 13, and then moved to Corona, Queens, mm. and went to high school in, in um and actually, John Bond High School, so Flushing. Okay. Um, I mean, again, my all my father, my father was incarcerated. All my uncles had experience incarceration. Uh, my father used drugs. So did my uncles. 
Um, my grandfather, bless his heart, he was an alcoholic. Um, so I, I, I was, and also East New York, for folks who don't know, had one of the highest crime rates in the city in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So what I've come to realize now is that the energy in that space was so low vibrational frequency. It was so depressive. That, and people were just trying to literally survive. Mm. Even my family, right? Like, what led them to sell drugs? What led them to, to do drugs? Those were coping mechanisms, survival tools. Um, so I saw this. I saw this play out all the time. The building, I mean, I remember one time clear as day, there was a shootout in front of our building, and I'm a little kid, and I had to throw myself on the floor so I wouldn't, you know, like that, that was, you know, that, that reaction you have in your balloon pop. I'm like, right. no, 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 that's real. That's a, a trauma response to something you experience as a child. Um, and I remember too, like the code that you could, there were drug dealers who would uh, hide drugs in the building underneath the steps. And the building was so broken down because the owners didn't want to really fix it, that it was easy. This, mm-hmm. A lot of the steps were broken. So I would see them put drugs and money under the steps and they would look at you, and you knew you had to keep uh, silent. Mm. There was no way to kind of speak up in that kind of a situation. So that was the context that I was growing up in, right? And there were no real trees, as you know. And, and these neighborhoods, they didn't care to invest in green space. Right. We had uh, Highland Park. That was a little further down that we would go to every now and then. Um, but that was it. Mm. And, you know, we didn't go there all the time. We went there sometimes. And so I think that kind of reality created the stage for me to understand systemic inequity and oppression from a very personal lens, right? Like, here I was in this environment um, where people weren't getting resources and the community wasn't treated with respect and it had directly impacted my family. And I would see it. I mean, I, I used to see my uncle cook cocaine on the stove. Mm-hmm. I, I even saw him shoot it up once. So juxtapose that. I also come from a very strong matriarch, very strong women. Juxtapose that with that in the same household. Because <laughs> we lived together too. So I lived with my grandparents, and then my uncles occupied the third bedroom, and my mom's sister and I occupied a very small room. Right. Uh, in, in twin beds. I slept with my mom in a twin bed until I was 13. Mm. Which people are always shocked by. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, that's a true story. Um, so, juxtapose that with these really strong women who are trying to find a way to help their family break free of the cycle of poverty. So, my mom benefited from the zeitgeist of the civil rights movement. So, she got a job working for the government as a secretary. That opportunity allowed her to eventually climb up the ladder, if that makes sense, which allowed us to shift class brackets Mm. at some point. Not right away. It took her a long time because of pay equity issues for women, and and also she didn't have a college degree. Um, But that became... So she did what she... She sacrificed so much so my sister and I could have a better life. And also, I think what she did that was really clever was she would take us out of East New York because she wanted us to see possibility. Mm. So because she started working in Manhattan, 
She would occasionally add, take us on the train. We, we had to learn the train maps hard. I still know the train map to this day because of her. We would take the train, go into the city, and do and see other things. And this is a thing that, I, you know, they say uh, that people don't realize. Unless you give people the space to see possibility and experience possibility, how do you expect them to dream possibility? She did that for us. Mm. She made it possible. She created avenues. I mean, I remember going to a jazz, free jazz festival by the World Trade Center when they used to have them um, when I was younger because she was like, come. Come, you're going to... We would go to... Remember the Sony Museum? Yeah. She took us when we were little before it was Sony. I think it was AT&T. I can't remember who... But she took us. She would do all of these things to expose us to possibility. And that started to create a gateway for me. Like, oh, this five-block radius doesn't have to be my whole life. Right. So, you know, I'm curious to see how you saw yourself as a young woman, knowing Mm. that there's a possibility where you can move up the economic ladder, but also understanding what was happening to the community and the effect that it had on your father and your uncles. Yeah, oh, you talk about gender stuff. Oof, okay, a lot of work around that. <laughs> um, well, I think what was interesting was, too, is that I was very well-behaved. Uh, so when you're well-behaved, you get more attention and support. Uh, and I was well behaved in part because I was the youngest of, of the grandchildren for a long time, not anymore. Um, and it was, I, I received rewards for that good behavior, mm. if that makes sense. I was always a good student and a good scholar. I mean, I even, they wanted to skip me a grade in elementary school and send me to an honors program. Really? Um, I chose not to do that. And a part of the reason was self-worth. I did not value myself as a child because that that issue of abandonment was always there. So, I mean, a little more context into my father. Uh, he, I didn't meet him until I was three. Mm. He was incarcerated until I was three years old. Um, and then when I met him, we'll make a long story short, he w- came out, was in my life, and then got reincarcerated. And I remember going to visit him at Rikers at least once with my grandmother because my mom didn't want to take me. And then he came out and had, you know, started working for a drug rehab company called the the National Recovery Institute and really got his life together. At some point, he started his new life in Florida when I was about 10. And um, decided, I think he was getting accustomed to that new life. So that was also a new experience for me. I was still living in East New York. And then at 10, my dad moves down to Florida. And then I go visit him and talk about mind blown. Mm. My mind was like, there are houses. My dad owns a house. Mm. Like, how did that happen? Uh, And then he had these friends who were a little more affluent. And I remember going to their houses and being like, mind blown. Like, they had a fish tank that ran a wall in this one house, and I was like, whoa. Those experiences also expanded, like, what was possible for me. I, I bring this up to say that I not only experienced abandonment at birth with him, mm-hmm. but at 10, he decided to disown me and say I wasn't his daughter. That was hard. And so I think when you... 
experienced multiple points of rejection and abandonment, and you're a girl in this context, it didn't matter how good I did in school. I didn't feel worthy. Mm. I didn't feel like I was lovable. So what I did actually was study harder because I wanted to make sure that I could compensate for not feeling worthy, right. for not feeling pretty, you know? So that was how I internalized um, gender mm. at that age. Right. So I wanted man, a, like a man's acceptance, and I got that from my grandfather in part. Uh, because he was he was the ma- became the primary father figure for me, and I think because my father did what he did, and I lived with my grandparents, they actually took on parental roles for me. I also lived with my mom; she was my mother. But they literally, I can say my grandmother is like my second mother, right. and my grandfather was the primary father figure. Um, and as much as he loved me, and he loved me in his own way, when I would see him be physically abusive and verbally violent, um, I also internalize that. Right. So you you have all these unhealthy narratives, right, of, of, for me, of relationships with men that carried over into adulthood um, and dating. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. So I would see the men in my life, but always see them at a bit of a distance because they held themselves at a bit of a distance. Uh, not only my father, my uncles were also in and out of jail. Right. So I didn't, you know, they were there, but they weren't always there. And, you know, they struggled with using. Right. When they would come out. Right. So it was, it was, uh, again, all I had was my grandfather. Yeah. And sometimes he was there, fully present, and sometimes he wasn't. Right. Well, well thank you for sharing that. I didn't expect to share all that, but... Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I appreciate that. And I think uh, it's, you know, I'm sure it's useful for many folks to, to hear that and to hear you overcome that as well because you're here and you've been doing amazing work. And this goes back to, you know, the lessons that you get from what you consider are perceived to be losses. Right. right? They teach you the most. You know, I've had several fights yeah. in my life, uh, you know, and, you know, I'm proud to say that I probably won most of them. But the ones that I carry with me to this day that actually taught me a lesson, you know, well, it makes sense, right, that the one that you lose will teach you a lesson because <laughs> yeah. that's the first thing they say is, I'm going to teach you a lesson, you know, I'm going to beat you up. But those are the ones that I carry with me, and, and I see the lessons in those one or two, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know losses. So I, I apply that to everything else in, in life um, when it comes to uh, just, like, situations that were very uncomfortable and, yeah. and at the time, um, you know, uh, negative um, but you also had school. Yes. I mean, school was the one area where I found like my, right. My sanctuary in the days because it was Were also, you like a teacher's pet. I was, I, I think I, I get teacher pet vibes pet. from you. Um, I was the teacher's pet for sure, but it okay. was also the only place I could hang out. Right. Mm. So in East New York, I was, because I was the youngest and I was a girl, mm-hmm. I wasn't allowed to go outside. So... If I could spend more time in school, that's what I then did because it was my escape. Interesting. In many, many ways. So, um, how much? Because even though you felt not worthy enough to get skipped, right? You said yeah, that was all internalized decision. 
Yeah. I mean, it also connected to, uh, I didn't want to create new friends. Right. Like, it, it, but I had such a deep desire to need to be accepted by people, mm-hmm. which connected to the, like, a lack of worthiness narrative. Gotcha. So I, the idea of having to create new friendships and being in a new environment was emotionally very overwhelming for me as a child. Mm. Um, who yeah. already at times didn't fit in, right? Because I was the teacher's pet. Right. Uh, so, so yes, it was always very like, what, what can I do to maintain some sense of stability in a, an environment that didn't feel stable? Interesting. And, but you continued to succeed academically? Yeah, for the I mean, high school was rocky. Okay. So, uh, in middle school, I did go to the honors program. I didn't get skipped into it, but I did go to uh, George Gershwin IS-166. They had an honors track. I'm not a fan of tracking now as an adult. I understand it better. But that was the track I was on. So I was in the 801 or 802 or 803, one of those classes. I can't remember. And we got to take, like, the math regents in middle school. Um, I Explain did. to me what tracking is. I, that's, this is the first time I've, I've ever heard of tracking. So tracking essentially is, is putting tier, uh, young people in groups based on their performance. Mm. And so essentially you're tracking their, their entire educational experience. Okay. Which means that their learning is never fully integrated. Because they're only being tracked with kids who perform at that level. Okay, so this is like uh, you're in the honors program, therefore you only mingle or have classes right. with the, other students in the honors program. Okay, right. yeah. I right. think we had that in my high school as well. Most, I, most schools do. I was not in the honors program, but uh, I saw I wasn't them. When I, got to high I saw them at, at the lunchroom. Yeah. yeah. But um, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so, I wasn't when I got to high school. But what, what happened, so I was, while I was doing really well, I started to spiral. Okay. And the spiral was connected to my father. Mm-hmm. So he had moved to Florida, stopped calling me, stopped talking to me, and my depression as a preteen shot through the roof. Mm. Um, I struggled. I struggled. I was a bit manic. Uh, not diagnosed, but I definitely was, like, not trying to get out of bed. I wasn't, you know, I was sad all the time. Mm. Uh, I had internalized what had happened very much as a reflection of me. So I remember my mom moved to Queens my in my eighth grade year uh, when I was uh, in middle school. Prior to that, we had lived with my grandmother until I was 12 or 10, 10. And then we moved in with my aunt uh, in Brownsville for a year or a year and a half. We basically shared a, she had a two-bedroom apartment. So it was my aunt and her, par- and her partner. Mm-hmm. And then my cousin and my cousin and then my sister on her own bed, and then my mom and I, again, shared the twin bed. Mm. That was how we lived. It was super crowded. Um, not unheard of or, un, uh, you know, abnormal for young people even today. Right. So she eventually was able to save enough money to get an apartment of her own. It, was still, it, would, it would have been a one-bedroom. It was a one-bedroom. Uh, so we still would have had to share space. Right. But she was like, I really just want to be, like, I want to stand on my own two feet. Of course. So she moved to Queens. That so happened to be the same year, my eighth grade year, that um, I'm like, my mom, so my mom and I, I'm like, can you, like, I just, she knew I was calling my father, reaching out to him all the time, right? So she eventually. And he was what? He was responding how? Because he He didn't respond. Okay. She eventually took him to court. 
you know, because he wasn't talking to her. He wasn't contributing anything financially. So she took him to court. And then um, I remember this clear as day. I, well, I was already struggling with depression. We went to some lab core place. And, you know, I mean, I was young, but I wasn't stupid. So I knew what we were doing. We were getting our blood tests. Mm -hmm. Paternity. Paternity test. Paternity test. So when I saw the paperwork, this was the first time I had seen a picture of my dad um, in years, right? Because he had not talked to me in three years. Right. He looked sick. He looked very, very sick. Um, and that made me even more sad. And so that last year of eighth grade, I also moved to Queens, but my school was in East New York, Brooklyn. So my commute was over an hour and 45 minutes per day. Uh, in one direction. So you double that, that was three my hours day. Right. 30 minutes. Yeah. So I would have to take the 58 to the 20 and the 20 all the way to East New York. So I was, I was running late all the time. I was sleeping in late. So my grades started to spiral. My attendance started to spiral um, because I just didn't have the motivation mm -hmm. that I would have. It, it was nothing about like skill or like could I do it. It was everything about the mental and emotional space that I was in. Mm. Did you have a mentor at all? No. Someone Not that you can point. talk to other than your mother? No. And, and your I, grandfather? No. Well, and my grandmother. Right? And your grandmother? Um, so I think what's interesting is that my, I love both my mother and my grandmother. And I mean, again, my grandmother is my heart. Um, people only can talk about what they know. And can only do what they know. And my mother was dealing with her own pain and trauma around my father and, and his rejection of her, which deepens um, because they reject, they, I mean, they literally, he, he not only rejected her, but his family rejected her. So when he said I wasn't his daughter, which he didn't have the, the, the courage to tell her directly, he had his sister call my mother. And I remember this phone call clear as day when I was like 12 because um, he did he just didn't answer my calls for like a couple of years and then his sister called my mother and she called my mother a whore and said that can't possibly be my brother's daughter and my mom I saw her world shatter you know because that was like a an insult right you know so I didn't expect to share this much today. You caught me in a vulnerable space, Charlie. Um, so so she, she had her own anger and animosity. And I, I, re I just remember watching her reaction to that phone call. It literally felt like my mother, her heart broke. Mm. Which hurt me. Right? Because it was like, that's my mother. Right. You know? Um, so I couldn't talk to her about him because it, she would, you know, she didn't, I mean, she had, yeah. It was never. She was dealing with too much right. on her end. Yeah, it was never a good conversation. Right. Whenever I brought right. him up, or even when I was depressed, and I think this created a wedge between my mother and I at that age too because when I when I was depressed I would take long showers. Again, I would lock myself in the room. I would sleep for hours. I would do all kinds of things. Um, she would say, I don't know why you're so upset about him. You know, she would 
essentially like project her anger of him right. onto me. Right. Um, like get over it. Right. Minimize um, your feelings so right. that because it was also hurting her seeing you hurt. Exactly. So as an right. adult, I can understand that. Yeah. My mom and I are super close. Um, but as a child, you can imagine that that made me want to go more insular, yeah. right? And not kind of talk to anybody. Yeah. I was like, well, I don't want to talk to anybody. This is going to be the reaction. Yeah. And my grandmother's solution, bless her heart, because my grandmother was, you know, a bodhisattva of this earth. And I'm not saying the term right, but it's a Buddhist term, divine giver of compassion. Mm. My grandmother was the embodiment of compassion. She was like, trata de llamarlo. Like, you know, try calling him. Mm-hmm. Try, you know, forgiveness, Diana. And, and you know, so I also knew with the space that I was in, I wasn't also ready to receive that. You know, so the only person I felt like I could talk to was actually really nobody. Mm-hmm. Because in school, when I started showing up late, they started, uh, you know, I got in trouble. I got in trouble. So forgive me for asking, please. Yeah. Stop me if if you feel this is getting too personal. But what happened in court? Well, I mean, it came back. I was his daughter. Right. So no. So you know, I want to know if uh, so he came back, but was he there? Because sometimes people. Oh, you know, he, he lived in Florida, so right, he didn't exactly. have to come. But he was given the results. Uh, he was given the results. Okay, and what was his response to that? Uh, he he was absent. He he still didn't respond. Okay. Okay, so the the I'm putting all my family's business out on the front street today. The the short answer was my father was very sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too long after we had done the paternity test, uh, he passed away. Mm-hmm. Probably within a year. Or I, I don't know the exact date to be honest because I I'm not fully looped into the story. Um, again, because that family stopped talking to me. Um. But he passed away from AIDS. So we didn't find out. I didn't find out until much later in my life. And my mom kind of kept it a secret because she found out before me, but because she didn't want me to be hurt, to be in pain. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, apparently my aunt found out first, my mom's sister, because we all grew up in the same neighborhood. They grew up in the same neighborhood. So East New York, Brooklyn was right next door to Bushwick. My father's family lived in Bushwick. Mm-hmm. And then my mom's family lived in East Bushwick. Again, they're right next to each other. Mm-hmm. So my aunt had moved to Bushwick, and so then my aunt ran into my other aunt from my father's side. And, th- and that's apparently how they found out, and then they kept it a secret from me for years. It was its own kind of thing. Did you, prior to him passing, did you have a conversation with him? No. Okay. Um, have you had a conversation with his family? Yes. Okay. Yes, as an adult. As an adult, right? It took me many, many years to turn back. So I think when he found out I was his daughter, he must have told his family. Because when my aunt ran into my other aunt, Mm -hmm. she apologized to my aunt for how she talked to my mother. Mm. I, at that time, again, did not know about any of this until a little later on. I didn't necessarily want to deal with it. Or, or like, you know, like I, when I did find out eventually, probably when I was like 16, like it, it, it took him a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wasn't in the space to be in relationship with people that didn't value me. Mm-hmm. And nor did I still value myself, right? But I was 
in a better space than when I was 13. Right. So to reopen those wounds would not have been productive right. for me at that age. Right, right. Have you forgiven your father? Yes, yes. I, mean, I think emotion naturally stirs up when I'm talking about it because it brings back the memory. Yeah. Um, but that took decades, to be honest. Like, it probably happened within the past two to three, four or five years. Mm. Yeah, maybe five years. So there's this thing I've come to realize. I can intellectually understand the, the, the trauma and the pain and can be like, yeah, I'm over it. But emotionally, do I understand? Have I forgiven? That's a whole other level of forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it took a lot of spiritual work. I mean, like I've been doing spiritual work for since my early twenties. So a lot, and not religious work, spiritual work. And it recently, um, the turning point for me was actually again, it might have been two or three years was going to see my little sister. I have a little sister from my father. Mm. The product of a marriage that he had. She is exactly 10 years, 6 months younger than me. So when he abandoned me, it was because of this new family. And so now as an adult, I can conceptualize that this was his opportunity to create a life that he thought he couldn't have. Right. So I can understand that and really empathize right with the, the, the need to feel like you want to feel like a whole human being. Mm. And here you have a family that you can be a part of from the very beginning. Again, as an adult, I can empathize with that. And I think my little sister helped to create that bridge mm. to that relationship. And I didn't meet her until I was about 30, 31. Wow. And then, you know, and gradually, I think, getting to know her... Um, and then doing more work around it led to a transition okay. and a pivot. Because I'm like, oh, I wasn't 31 three years ago. Right. But it eventually led to a pivot for me. Right. And seeing if I don't let this toxic stuff go, it's going to continue to just create harm for me. Mm. So, you know, you, you mentioned bridge. And um, one of the things that I've noticed from you in my eyes or, you know, via my ears, is that you are a master bridge communicator. And what I mean by that is that I've seen you in various spaces go back and forth with young people in a language that they understand, right? But also be able to effectively host events and convey uh, an agenda um, with so much clarity, with colleagues or persons that are there to, you know, help sponsor the events. How did you become that person? It's a great question. That all happened in middle school. Then you get to high school. So I'm a freshman at John Bond High School because I had missed so many days of school and I was late so much in middle school and I, my grades had dropped a little. I wasn't eligible to get into any of the special screen schools. Mm. Uh, so I had to go to my zone school. So John Bond was my zone school. I remember being a freshman. And this is like, to me, must have been divine intervention in some ways. And I'm sitting in the guidance office with my guidance counselor, who's like Miss Hirschhorn. Bless her heart. I don't know, you know, 
wherever she's at, mm-hmm. she she literally shifted my life mm-hmm. from like sitting in a manic depressive state, like I don't really know what I'm doing, to I'm gonna give you possibility. Mm-hmm. That's what she did. So she said, Oh, you know, how about we add student government to your schedule? I have no idea what inspired her to add that. And at the time I was impressionable. I was like, sure. Whatever. So freshman year, I joined a student government class. And that became the space that I found my voice. Mm. Like, literally, we took communication classes. We, we, we learned how to do public speaking. Mm. I ran for office. And, and again, I started to feel confidence. I started to feel good about right. something. I right. started to reconnect to the little girl who loved learning. Mm. Um, and I remember the first time I ran for office, I lost. But it forced me to practice my communication skills. And then I ran again and I won. And then that opened the door to more speaking opportunities and to more kind of uh, spaces with access to to the principal, to teachers, to other folks in positions that I normally would not have had access to uh, if I weren't in student government. Right. So I also took a debate class mm. and signed up for the debate club in high school. So again, that one opportunity then created the gateway for so many opportunities. Yeah. And I think really putting into practice that early on, let me practice communication, let me practice communication. And you know debate too. That's like nonstop training. I'm going to practice communication, I'm going to practice communication. Um, developed me, I think, a bit earlier. Now, that got cleaned up when I went to college, meaning that I got more polished with mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But because I was from East New York and I had grown up, like there was always going to be a part of me that would still connect right. to, to what I knew, to where I came from. Interesting. And then you became this hybrid speaker where you were able to yeah. uh, merge hip-hop lyrics into, into yes. your conversations. I've seen that done. I've seen that done. You know, And uh, again, driving the point home with a lot of these young folks, uh, but doing it in a way where they can connect with you. Um, it's a skill set. It's a skill set. That took probably decades right. Right, to cultivate. Right, right. It also took acceptance of of the culture, you know, of yeah. yourself, of where you come from. Because I think what we see, unfortunately, is when young folks like yourself leave certain communities, they don't want to look back because it's too painful. Um, they don't want to revisit that. Right. Um, and they, you know, get into whether it's code switching, but you were able to manage both worlds and thrive in these both worlds, um, you know, interchangeably. And you did it, you know, from what I've seen, you've done it with ease. Um, but did you see that representation at all during your teenage years? Someone that looked like you or had your similar experience, um, who believed that you can achieve more, that you can, you should go to college, you can do whatever you want. Did you have that towards the end? Because, I, you know, for me, I needed someone to kind of get me over yeah. my junior and senior year in high school. So in those crucial years, did you have that? Yeah. So, I w- again, I think that that, that student government opportunity right. opened the door to access other opportunities. Okay. Um, so my student government teacher... Miss Ziefel, bless her heart too, she was tough on us, but she never let us give up. Mm. And that I will always appreciate her for. Uh, 
you know, she was a white woman, but she cared immensely about the students. Mm. And she would drive drive it home, like, what are you doing? What do your grades look like? She would review our report cards. <laughs> she would write comments on our report cards, like, good job, or what's this C about? Like, mm. she would circle it. And she would sit and meet with you one-on-one, all of the kids in student government. Like, right. she was no joke. Has she not, like, given me that tough love, coupled with Miss Miss Hirschhorn giving me the softer love, I like to say, the guidance counselor love? Um, you know, they were guides for me. And then uh, my sophomore year um, in high school, I joined a program called Meta Networks, mm. uh, which then became access to leaders of color who looked like me, so who supported me mm. for the rest of my high school career. Uh, Sandy Gutierrez, who I think still works for the Department of Youth and Community Development in New York City, became one of those uh, mentors and role models for me. Mm-hmm. And she was a Puerto Rican woman from New York City, and she also like had tough love and would give you tough love. Um, and then there was uh, Mickey, who worked with Sandy, who also like nurtured and loved me. Mm-hmm. So I was blessed. I was blessed that I had all of these really amazing women surrounding me and saying, no, Diana, you can do it. You can do it. Because mm. they saw something that I couldn't necessarily see right. and understand. Did they help you out with college applications? So the so I'm a Posse uh, alum, yes. Posse Foundation alum. Shout out to Posse. So, Please explain what Posse is. Yes. A lot of folks think it's a, it's a street gang. No, uh, well, it, you know, the term used to be a crew. Right. Uh, so this story has been drilled into my head now for 20 years. So I think I have it on lock. So, so the Posse Foundation is a four-year full tuition leadership scholarship mm. that sends young people from urban centers to predominantly white institutions or elite institutions across the country to serve as uh, teams uh, that would support each other in their educational achievement. Mm. So Posse has, uh, I believe still, so far, don't quote me on this because I'm not sure, uh, over 90% four-year college graduation rate, which is unheard of. Again, I think it's 90% still. I could be off because it's been a while since I've heard the data point. Right. Um, and and the, it started in 1989 when Debbie Beal, the founder, was working with young people in New York City uh, who, similar to my experience, right, who would go away, though, to these elite institutions and then come back after um, dropping out after not having the support they needed. Mm. And so what, what one young person said was, I, if I would have had my posse, I wouldn't have dropped out. Wow. So that then became the inspiration and, and the seed idea for uh, Let's Create a Program that sends young people in teams to support each other. Right. So that they can make sure they're successful in their college journey. So I, I say this, this is kind of why I bring it up. So my senior year, Ms. Ziefel put my name in for the Posse Scholarship. Because Posse goes to all of the public schools and asks for referrals of students. You get to nominate, I think now it's up to 10. I don't know if it was up to 10 before. Like, that's a whole other question. And uh, Ms. Ziefel nominated me. So then I go, you, you go for these interviews, um, and I was so excited. So other kind of connected piece of the story, the Meta Networks program that I was a part of 
since I was 15 had been teaching me how to do peer facilitation of, of social justice groups mm. and topics. So I literally had to learn how to facilitate that young, which also contributed to my communication skills. Right. Um, loved Meta Networks for that. Meta Networks was located right next door to Posse. So some of the folks who were training me in the summers, because it was a summer program largely, it was a year-long program too, but I was more involved in the summer because my school, the program was based on Wall Street, mm. and uh, Queens was kind of far from Wall Street. So in the school year, I would go sometimes, but not as much as I did during the summer. Right. Some of the staff they hired in the summer were posse scholars. So I had the good benefit of having worked with some posse scholars when I was in high school. Um, but also, Meta Networks essentially did what Posse did, but on a high school level. Uh, we, we weren't teams, but they were teaching you how to be peer educators. They were teaching you how to manage group dynamics. They were teaching you how to own the fullness of who you were. Wow. And, that, and that's uh, Sandy Gutierrez. That was like her brainchild, to my knowledge. Uh, again, I have so much respect for Sandy. Um, so... I interviewed for Posse, and I was super excited, uh, loved it, um, had a great time. First interviews in a group setting, second interviews one-on-one, and they go through your whole high school, like, for, like you know, transcript. The person who interviewed me was one of the, the staff that I had met over the course of the summer, uh, Ronnie Savage. Mm. Veronica. What was her name? I called her Ronnie. Um... She was the person interviewing me, and I had already known Veronica, so that like broke the ice right. a little. Right. Um, and I remember getting to the third interview because there's three rounds, and Kevin, who oversaw Posse New York at that time, um, not the executive director, but was the director of programs. Kevin looked at me and said, "Do you, is this something you really want?" And I said, I've never been clear about I know anything. Kevin. Uh, Kevin, Na- Na- no, not Kevin. What's Kevin's name? I don't know Kevin's last name. Is he tall? He is. He's light-skinned? Yes. He went to Columbia? I don't know, maybe. He has dark features, dark hair? He has black hair, yeah. He has black hair. I know Kevin. Nice! Kevin is, um, he was married yes. to uh, Jesenia. I don't know him either. Dominican, uh, she's my god sister. And they both amazing folks. That's funny because I think I remember me. I rem- I remember meeting his wife. I just don't remember her name. Yeah, and he has a daughter, beautiful daughter. She's like mm-hmm. 17, 18 years old now in high school, about to go to college. Yeah. I remember yeah. Kevin. Kevin actually uh, wanted me to join Posse as well, and I for some reason I, I went to a few. Um, I don't remember. I know my sister was more involved, and they were able to help her nice. uh, with with some uh, funding for Villanova. She ended up going to Penn State. She thought Villanova was just way too white for her. But yeah, but yeah, I've had some experience, and it's funny that you came across Kevin as well. Oh yeah, Kevin. Kevin became like a, a a male mentor to me. Yeah. To be honest, like he was the director of programs, but I think they were. I don't. I remember something with the staffing pattern that Kevin ended up facilitating our group sometimes, mm. and so we were. Our group was deeply attached to Kevin. Right. right. Uh, like I, I was like, oh my god, and also for me to see a, a Latino man who, 
embodied like a different version of manhood that I had not really seen right. was super helpful. Mm. And like I was grateful to him for that, uh, if that makes sense. I, I don't know that I could fully uh, conceptualize that at that age in this way, but now I'm like, oh, okay. So again, the more opportunity I had, the more access I had, which also opened more kind of viewpoints and perspectives. Mm. All that to say, that was a long story to say, that I only applied for my posse school because it was early acceptance, right? And so when I got posse, I didn't have to apply to any other schools. So what did that come with? Did that come with a scholarship? Yes, you get the full tuition, four years full tuition. Uh, but, you know, when you're from our families, like, room and board is also a cost thing. Of course. Yeah. So I think back then, it would have been nice to have had a bit more support with room and board. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still really grateful. I got a, I got a great education, not without its struggles, because it was a PWI, predominantly white institution. And we were the first posse mm-hmm. at that institution. And that comes with its own struggles. So I was so excited to have a formal mentor. Right, like I think to me, just the title mentor was right. a big deal, right? Uh, because even though I had all these wonderful role models and folks who invested in me, and now as an adult, I can see that they were mentors. Yeah, it just felt, you know, my younger self was like, "This is amazing." Um, and so she wrote us a letter uh, once we got the posse, and telling us who she was. And I remember writing her a letter back, mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I gotta write the leader letter. Right. Like, I'm super excited about this." Um. I can say without hesitation now, I probably would have dropped out of Wheaton. Not out of college. I would have gone to college somewhere else. Uh, But out of Wheaton, had it not been for my posse, for my mentor, my mentor played a key role in that, and for the other mentors' role models that nurtured me when I was on campus. It's so bittersweet because that makes me happy for you, but it makes me unhappy and sad for the many others that didn't have that experience. Yeah, mentors make the world of difference. Right. I, I, I think, um, not that your parents aren't amazing. My mom did the best she could, and she's an amazing mother, and she will sacrifice anything for my happiness. But a mentor, you know, they don't have to be the disciplinarian. Right. <laughs> like, they get to play a bit more of a neutral role. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so... I think because of that, their influence can look a little different. Right. And that's why it wasn't no surprise that you got me involved in Big yeah. Brother, Big Sister. Yes, you know? I sure did. Who's that? Diana texting me again? Sure yes, like yes, I'm going to submit the application. I got it, I got it. And you got me involved, and it was great. You know, uh, I'm not going to say his name on, on record, but, yeah. uh, you know, good kid, um, tough background, right? But that was the story of many of the young yeah. people that were considered littles, right? Yeah. And your program or, uh, you know, Big Brother, Big Sister is the name of the organization. Uh, they were working to uh, connect them with, uh, with role models. Yes. Right? Talk to me about that work because I'm sure it was rewarding as all. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also think it was a different lens and perspective. So they had hired me to oversee uh, all education programming. Mm. And this was the first time they were going to pivot and do educational programming in a much more like supportive way of, um, of, of mentees. Mm. I tend to be sometimes in jobs the one-two pilot. I get hired for lots of roles where I'm piloting lots of things. Mm. Um, so 
it was pretty cool because our particular mentoring program was a hybrid mentoring program. Right. So meaning that there was a group-based element in the school because these are school-based partnerships. And then there was a one-on-one based element in the community. And so mentees and mentors in general had to meet twice a month. That was our our requirement. Uh, If you were community-based, which means you were all fully embedded in the community, which means you met on your own one-on-one, it was still two times a month. Uh, We had a workplace mentoring program where you met in the corporation, uh, at the location, and uh, all of the corporate partners would have their own little. Right. But it was a group-based mentoring program. Ours was like the bridge between Mm -hmm. the two. Uh, So I actually thought that the bridge was quite fascinating, meaning that uh, we, in the corporate context, you had all of these colleagues who knew each other already, right? Like, and they would go down, Mm -hmm. like, take two hours out out of every other week and meet with the littles. Uh, in this hybrid context, we would be in the school, as you know, Charlie, because yep. you would come on the weekends in yes. Harlem. What was cool about that was the mentors didn't know each other because we recruited them from everywhere. Right. Um, and they got to still meet with their little in the community. So the, it re- alleviated the need to have to structure every outing because we took, we took charge of one. We were like, we'll structure one of the outings. And at the same time, they got to build their own relationship with the little. Yeah. So the mentors I actually found got along, like sometimes, and would hang out. Yeah. Outside, I think you have too, right? Yeah, you connected yeah. with a few, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like some cool cats out right? there, right? It was fascinating because I think it was, for that reason, extra beneficial for mentors too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to tell you. Like it was very surprising, for me, that the experience was about not only connecting with your littles, but also connecting with the others that were involved in that in that mission, right? Because it is a mission. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also very surprising to me to see how many littles were actually motivated to reciprocate these uh, relationships with their, their bigs. Uh, they looked forward to these events. They looked forward to hanging out. Uh, they looked forward to the conversations. You know, it, it, you know, it, was, it was something that really encouraged me to, like, start mentoring even outside of the program nice. you know yes for sure for sure and also i've seen benefits from it i was lucky because i pledged a fraternity in college right so even though i wasn't a high schooler i would have benefited tremendously from mentorship in high school mm-hmm. i'm sure um and i probably would have done a lot better academically but it wasn't until i got to college that i pledged an organization that i got to talk to men that uh you know, came from my environment that were dealing with some of the issues that I had dealt with. Right. Um, or vice versa, they dealt with some of the issues that I was dealing with. Um, and and also aspiring to be a lot more than just uh, what I was surrounded by, the influences that I was surrounded by in my own neighborhood. So to see that representation and to, to have access to them, to ask them for advice, opened my world up, mm-hmm. turned my world into a universe. Um, so... I could only imagine, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and what if, but what if I would have had that at six or seven or eight, right. you know? Oh, I, thought, I think it and, makes a difference. Right. And just like you, sure. you know, my father wasn't there, my, but my father had passed away when I was six, mm. right? So um, that's why having a male figure would have, I'm sure, confidently, I can tell you, would have benefited me tremendously. But it was great. I, you know, I would go down there on Saturdays. I would give them the business because, you know, we would play basketball and, you can't let these youngins think that, you know, life is easy. 
I had a great time with with all the littles because you also interact with the other young yeah. young men there, right? And also there were some young women there that also Absolutely. had, you know, their their bigs there as well. What are the challenges that you did see in mentoring? Or, yeah, um, you know, I could talk to you from my personal experience. Yeah, uh, what I saw as a challenge, and I don't know if a lot of mentors, or should I say bigs, mm-hmm. right, were uh, prepared to 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 handle. Um, I like, for example, since, yeah, yeah, since I'm already sure. talking, yeah, so, you know, sometimes you go in there and you think that you're just dealing with this little, with this person, with this high school student, but you're also dealing with that person's family. Yes. And the influences that that family has on him. And uh, sometimes they run, runs contrary to the world that you was, the world that you were showing them, which is like, it, you can do a lot more than what you see right now you can go to school you know you can educate yourself on this like not everything has to be about that so there were things that you know he had to be in the crossroads of and almost having to decide like okay where do I fit in all this I have someone that challenging me to open the way I see the world but then I have my family that needs me and you know out of survival you know he needs to attend to that as well Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think that was a, especially the case with older littles who also have established like some form of their identity and routine. Uh, I think that can be challenging. Mm-hmm. I think what you're saying, too, is, is normal. Um, it, it is. It's not always easy, but it's always worth it. It's always right. worth it. And I think um, even having been a, a mentor myself. I get more out of it than I think the other person does because it's also the gift of service and reciprocity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the thing I like to tell folks, even now as a supervisor, I'm not a mentor, but I, you know, I feel like I'm coaching people and supporting them to be the best version of themselves right. as a supervisor. Uh, and it's not just transactional because I could be transactional, like, hey, did you do X, Y, and Z as task? Or that that's, doesn't motivate people. Uh, what motivates people is are you invested in who they are? Right. Uh, and that requires consistency and persistency. Right. And by consistent action is what I mean by consistency and that you are persistent and die hard. Um, but for me, I gain joy out of seeing someone, someone grow. Mm. And even if they surpass me, that is the greatest gift anyone could give. Because right. right. it's like, man, you did it, which now means it's possible for me to do, right. which means it's also possible for others to do. And in that, there's reciprocity. Of course. Because I'm then seeing a reflection of, of you, uh, of me and you, and you're expanding my possibilities right. Right. with that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, do you find it harder for young men to connect with male uh, mentors than young women connecting with uh, women mentors. I, I think you're talking to uh, masculinity in many, right. many ways right. and the way men uh, do relationships, right? So I, I don't want to get into stereotypes. But I but I do think when you're talking about the de- gender construct uh, in the U.S. and particularly the gender, the binary gender construct, um women is our girls are socialized from very early on to be more in touch with their feelings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah 
Uh, and I think your guy, I think is much harder. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's funny that you say that because in order for me to connect with my little, I, I found myself having to be doing something else. For example, like we would connect while playing sports and talking shit to one another, right? But in, within those experiences, within those interactions, I would, you know, make sure to give them some advice or how that translated to outside life, outside of right. the basketball court, as opposed to, you know, what I saw with the young women and the female uh, bigs, um, I, I saw that there was a more intimate conversation happening. Um, you know, so, you know, yeah, and a lot of that... The Saturday programs, the women and the girls would... Yeah, I had not thought about that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, yeah. you know, that didn't happen all the time, but I, that was something that I saw... Um, when, when I was doing your program. Um, also, I know there's many uh, complications surrounding male mentors of, of young women, you know, um, I'm sure there's... Yeah, a Big Brothers Big Sisters does not do right. that. So do you, do you think that if they found a way to do it in a way where, um, you know, all parties are protected... Um, that that would be beneficial or something that big brothers and big sisters would want to do down the line? Because only in, in talking about it or in thinking about it in a way of helping young men interact with women, mm. right? And also seeing value. That's a good point. Value in the friendship with women at an early age and vice versa for young women that maybe may not have a strong father presence at home, not to say that they want their mentor to be a father, you know, because obviously right. it's tricky. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Roles. I don't know how, how this yeah. can be worked out. I'm saying I'm sure I there's someone that's really smart that can figure <laughs> this out. But yeah. but still, I'm sure it would be very beneficial for her to see, to value, or you know, to value yeah. male friendships at an early age. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just don't, I, don't I, I have never thought about that. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I think you talk to the organization. I do think they would worry a bit. Um, but they, they also have expanded the way they do programming. I really don't know. I've right. been tapped out mm -hmm. oof, yeah. since since 2013 or 14. Yeah. You've been tapped out because you've been focusing a bit more now on like diversity, right? Diversity and inclusion. Yes, more and more explicit ways because I think social and 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 I want to be also anti-racism in mm -hmm. social justice work. Because right. I think diversity and inclusion is a bit of the watered down mm -hmm. language um, around the work, meaning that uh, what we know for certain is that diversity and inclusion as a concept has existed for years and has not shifted the the leadership the, the racially representative leadership structures. Of corporations, mm -hmm. um, uh, like so. If it were bigger, it would it would shift the focus. Mm. So when you dilute uh, racial justice or anti racism in a diversity and inclusion bucket, you're not explicitly naming the problem. Gotcha, gotcha. If that okay. makes sense, and and to undo something, you have to explicitly name the problem. Mm. You have to be able to identify it. In a clear way to undo it. Think about it. I mean, power systems that you don't see or understand are really hard to dismantle. But if I understand it and I see it, then I know how to dismantle it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it just makes pragmatic sense. Uh, so that is why I know a lot of folks are now using that language. But, you know, folks who are really like going to push themselves are going to name racial justice 
or race equity as the agenda. Gotcha, gotcha. And where does sexual harassment come into play? Does that um, come into play when it comes to gender sensitivity training? Yeah, I mean, I think it's also intersectional, but uh, ab- but absolutely, because okay. um, yeah, I've yeah I've facilitated sexual harassment trainings many times. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think yeah. I read somewhere that you facilitated that in in uh, Columbia University. I used to coordinate the uh, sexual harassment compliance training, mm. so I didn't facilitate it, but I was in every single training. Right. That was interesting. Interesting. Try, try doing that with Ivy League professors mm. who um, don't always understand the merit of them being in the room because they're already educated right. around these things. Right, right. What do you think... Okay, because I don't want to take the conversation away from racial justice because it's really important, Yeah. right? But first of all, what are you seeing from, from the people, from the organizations that you're working with? when it comes to them addressing sexual harassment at the workplace? Because I think the numbers are crazy. Like 56% of women have reported, in, in the states have reported sexual harassment at one point or another in this country. Um, well, I, you know, I, I only do that particularly at Good Shepherd. I haven't done it in a while. I'm going to be honest. I kind of passed the buck on facilitating that training. Mm. Um, but I will say for that training in particular, I think a part of it has to do with gender norms, mm. right? Um Meaning that uh, even the language that we use, the pictures that we put up in a space, uh, can create discomfort for anybody, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And most of the time, when you ha- when you're functioning in a patriarchal society, which is what the U.S. a part of the U.S. construct is, is patriarchal, mm-hmm. meaning that it's male man dominated. Um, that group's behavior is then normalized. Mm-hmm. The same way with white folks. We have a, right, it's the same concept. That group's behavior is then normalized. Right. Which means that they can essentially move in the world, whether you're white and in this context a man, without having to think about the implications of your behavior, of what you post. Because um, they don't have to. That's mm-hmm. actually a part of the benefit of having that unearned privilege. Right, right. Versus a woman, in in this context, right, she has to understand masculinity. She has to understand how men move because it depends on her uh, survival. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The same with folks of color in the context of whiteness. We have to learn the white construct in order to survive in it. There's no way. And I tell people this all the time. I am where I'm at in my career as young as I am. And I, you know, I'm not that young, but I'm also young. In the context of being working for one of the top nonprofits in New York City at an executive level role mm-hmm. for my age is not the norm. Mm-hmm. I am there because I've learned the white construct. I've learned how to navigate it. I've learned how to talk its talk. Um, I've learned how to network in that context it has opened up doors for me. Interesting. Um, so as a person of color, I understand that. And I'm sure you do too, right? As a lawyer, right? Now, when you're a woman, same concept. So men then post, let's just say, post these things or say things that have a, are layered with bias and layered with, like, n- things you should not be saying, right? Mm-hmm. Um 
because they don't have to develop the consciousness around not having to say it. Right, right. Or not having to post that picture. Right. Talking um, about posting a picture, that, you know, there was one time you, you hit me up on IG uh, because I had reposted oh, yes. something from a friend. It was a, uh, a photo of what feminism looks like, right? And it was two images, oh, yeah. right? The top image was, uh, you know, I guess a cartoon character of, of a young woman. Of, of her saying... Who was upset and her saying that yeah. she wanted more. And there was the cartoon underneath, which was a cartoon of, a, of both a, a man and a woman, and they're shaking hands. And she's smiling. And she's smiling, which is supposed to be... Fem- feminism is, is supposed to be a search for equality as opposed to search for more power than the other. Right, right, right. right. And, uh, it was a wild photo. It, yeah, it was a wild <laughs> photo. Um, the caption was, was better. I don't remember what the caption was. The caption was. wasn't. The caption I challenged wasn't. you on that, you too. You did, you did. Yes. And you provided... And you provided, um, I don't remember what the caption was, to be quite honest. I don't remember either. Yeah, but I, but I do remember that you raised some really good points as far as the image is concerned. Absolutely. And that, the image you know, was you're triggering sexist. historical yeah. perceptions, stereotypes of what a woman is when she's assertive or when she wants right. to. Right, right. Yeah, so. It, it was, a, it was a, yeah, and, and I, I compare this for folks, right? Because we all have varying degrees. Well, those of us who are college-educated, right, um, have moved up the class ranks, we have varying degrees of, of privilege. Now, in the context of whiteness, that's unearned privilege. Right. In the context of gender, that's also unearned privilege right. in a patriarchal society, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So men, again, don't have to do the work of having to understand this. Yeah. So when I saw that image... I remember I went off like Kermit the Frog. You seen that meme? Yeah, but you was cool though about it. Oh yeah, I'm always cool about it. I can be diplomatic because yeah, I got to yeah, yeah. right? But... I and was, it's okay, I guess I guess that speaks to the image. It's okay if you weren't cool about it, right? Well, I, I wasn't <laughs> cool about the image, but I was okay in engaging in dialogue. Right, 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 right. Um, but I was, because I was triggered by the image. Because mm-hmm. um, what that image did was essentially say, women be subservient, be make me feel good about me, uh, prioritize me over you, right? Be nice, be nice, smile. That is loaded sexist language, right? A woman has to be nice, has to smile, has mm-hmm. to kind of do all these things to break her back, to essentially be subservient to men. Mm-hmm. To appease the male gaze, to appease the male appetite, to appease his needs for comfort and safety. That was the problem with the picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So a man, of course, who po- and even your friend who posted it, right? I don't know that he's looking at it with that lens. I mean, and he still seems stuck to his perspective yeah. in some ways, right? Yeah. Truthfully, right? And that's that's his own thing. But But again, that kind of masculinity is embedded in some ways still in a power over construct meaning that i as a man what i say is more valuable than what you say as a woman right so even if you harm if i harm you you still got to do it in a nice way and it's the same with white folks white folks want people of color to prioritize their comfort over our discomfort Mm. So then the politics of niceness serves no one. It doesn't mean we're rolling around the streets being right, but being rude, but it means that anger has its place. 
that me calling you out has its place. That that actually allows us to move into more authentic relationship. That's interesting because while I agree with you to some extent, I, I do I do acknowledge that because you pretty much engaged me in the way that you did. Yeah. It helped the discourse. So, but I and understand. You shifted in yeah, perspective. Of course, I shifted in yeah. perspective. Of course, one, I respect you, right? Yeah. And you know, and it shouldn't be about okay, I'm only listening to someone that I respect, right? I should, you know, not discount any any person that comes at me with their truth, right? But I do, as a person that understands communication, and I'm sure you do too, but you're also saying that people have every right to be angry, right? Right. And, and, and being angry is, or having anger is normal, especially in light of like these micro, historically these microaggressions right. that happen against women on a daily basis, right. right? Totally understand that. But we can also agree that in living in such a patriarchal society, and because we live in a society where education is not equally provided to all classes of people and that we can also agree that not a lot of folks and not a lot of young men have access to what we've had access to yeah to mentorship programs or going to these universities that they're also lagging behind and that they may not have the knowledge or the self-awareness to see themselves in that light to be critical of themselves in that light right so mm -hmm. how can we hold them accountable while acknowledging or not shaming them for their ignorance. Right. First, I'm going to say y'all are grown. But I'm not talking about me. I'm but talking about... We talk about where the post started, right? So Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, meaning that I expect grown folk to have done some of their own work. Right, 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 right. Especially if these are folks talking about masculinity and right. redefining masculinity. Right. My expectation is... Uh, that you are doing the work to understand how you redefine it outside of a patriarchal context, which means that you are not doing it from your lens, but that you are centering a woman's lens in that conversation. Mm. Um, doesn't mean that you don't support men, right? But again, how do you do it in a way that really honors women? Mm. Uh, and how, essentially, any kind of learning that we have to do now as adults is unlearning. We have to undo what we've been taught what sure. we've been socialized into yeah so that way we can be the best version of ourselves where we do then truly see people as equals and equals doesn't mean that we're it's equal inputs well that is equal but equity isn't that equality is equal inputs right. equity is fair inputs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's a fair distribution recognizing right who's been most harmed by a system okay. who needs the most support to be lifted up in that system and mm -hmm. construct but you know it's and interesting so we'll go to young men but yes i wanted to say that but but no and yeah. that and that makes a lot of sense but also do you think that takes in con into consideration uh not only the gender uh the gender construct here or the intersection but also, we have to acknowledge the educational. You know, obviously, I know you're talking yeah, yeah. to grown men, right? In this context, but, uh, but in general... In general, we also have to acknowledge our own educational privilege in how we absolutely. talk to others. So, yeah, yeah. 
But I think there's, you know, and I, I, and I bring, so at Exalt, one of the classes we would teach or a clip we would take, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie now, but it was about hip hop. And there's a scene in one of the movies about like masculinity, mm-hmm. and you see BET. You know what was that annual thing BET used to do where you go to the beach and it was a concert BET lot. I don't remember. One of those. I one know. of those. And the video clip was of men like talking to women some kind of way, right. and then smacking women, mm-hmm. like you know, saying you know things that are inappropriate. We would intentionally show that clip to young people to say what's going on here. And we would open the can of worms, like, let, let's have this real dialogue and discourse about uh, relationships with men and women in our communities. Right. Young people are receptive when you use tools they understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the ability to unpack anything that you support them with. So while I do think more young men need more positive role models, they need to be talking about redefining masculinity, um, they need to be learning about that, that in part not only starts with the education system, but that also starts with the men doing that work, right? Right. So that's why I bring it back to the adults always. If you are adults who are leading this work, it is your responsibility to do it in a way that does not create harm towards women. Mm. And when you start creating that, lang- the using the language of like the politics of, of, of kindness, which again, remember, that also speaks to like the traditional role a woman was expected to embody. You had to be the like virgin, right? You had to be uh, respectability politics, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That was what made you a good woman. You were domestic, you were respectable, you, 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 you did all these things. That we've all been conditioned to think makes a good woman. Yeah. That, how is it that you get to redefine your manhood, but you're not redefining how I should show up as a woman? And even that, how is it that you're letting me define what womanhood looks like and not your your perspective? Right, right. Fair point. I, you know, I just look at it as far as a practical consideration for let's say let's take gender out of the way and let's put race in it right and i have to check a white counterpart for something that he said that was my that could be considered as a micro aggression towards another colleague so i'm pulling this white person to the side and i'm like look man this is what it is this is how you did it but then my boy, the, the one that feels offended and he has every right to feel offended he comes out and says that's why you're fucking racist you know, and all of a sudden, that that dialogue between me yeah, and I him... Yeah, I mean, it gets shut down. It uh, shuts it's down. It's counterproductive, but is it sometimes valuable? Maybe, yes. Uh, and here, here's why I say that. Sometimes guilt is a useful tool. Mm. Meaning that I don't believe that recreating harm is beneficial, but I think if it happens, it happens, mm-hmm. right? And, and especially in the context of someone who is being oppressed... Mm-hmm. Uh, reacting to the oppression. Right, right. Understand. Right? Understand. Uh, the other piece of that, too, is microaggressions, and, and Dr. Daryl Wing Sue out of Columbia talks about this, is like death by a thousand cuts. So if I'm experiencing microaggressions on a regular, and I probably am, right, um, then that one incident that that person said that day might have been my tipping point. Mm. But underneath it is an iceberg. Right. 
So is it my job and responsibility to constantly remain kind when you, you folks of the collective have treated me with disrespect on a persistent basis, right? So, so right. So back to this. So that is a natural reaction mm -hmm. to be angry. And honestly, people of color most of the time don't react that way. We actually prioritize white people's comfort over our discomfort. I'm not for violence, right? That's not what I'm right, getting at. Right. So if I say you are a racist, you need to do your work, a white person is going to be triggered too. So we are feeding the cycle of conflict in right. that regard, right? right? No doubt about it. And sometimes that can fall on unintended persons. It can, it can, but in the context of that person, sometimes that could lead to a critical shift. Yeah, that is correct. Right. Meaning that uh, a, any critical inc incident can be a, a moment for a critical shift. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I'm feeling guilty, there is guilt that's actually good guilt. Meaning that I'm reflecting on how I could be a better person right. and therefore I might shift my behavior. Shame is counterproductive. You know, when people lean to shame, it's like, hey, there's nothing for you to be ashamed about. It is what it is. Accept it and change it. Move to a different space. Mm -hmm. Shame becomes then you're, you're self-deprecating, and that's not helpful to anybody. But right. there's, there is good guilt. Right. Good guilt that leads to money that supports movements. Yeah. Good guilt that leads to... I'm really going to take this anti-racist course or I'm going right. to take this, I'm going to learn more about, I'm going to read Kenny's book. Yeah. It's not all people should be doing. Right. But it, it, it can shift. To shift sometimes requires a critical incident. Mm. It's exactly what's happening in the U.S. today. Right. We are shifting because there has been a series of critical incidents compounded on top of each other that is forcing us to change. Yeah. As, as men... We just have to do a better job of conveying this message to other men that um, to help them understand where these various reactions from women are coming from, right? Yeah. And um, and, and you know, and also to you know, kind of keep the ego, keep the defensiveness um, in check, uh, because again. You know, like you said, a thousand cuts. You know, if um, if they understood that, that if every day a woman is going through some level of microaggression, uh, then they would like understand that it's less really about them, right? Um, so that they don't take it personal. But it's a reminder that they have to do the work. I, I think you said it on the you know. So so, but you know, my thing is that yeah. you know, from a, from a place of communication, I've always been one. To always say, like, all right, like, if you want me to treat you kind, respect is bi-directional, right? So sometimes when when you have people screaming at another person, and I'm not confrontational at all, mm -hmm. so it goes against the way I communicate. So when I see that, I'm like, no, no, that's not the way. But again, I'm not trying to hijack everybody's narr anyone's narrative. You know, I would do that whether it's it's two men arguing. Like, yo, bro, like, let me talk to him. Like, let me, let me help him understand, you know, because sometimes... People don't receive information the same way. When I was young, whenever my mother used to scream at me, I would tune her out. I would tune her out. So now if I get yeah. someone that approaches me in that same way, I disconnect because I'm triggered by that. However, if, if, if I'm engaged, you know, 
in a way where, whether you're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. But if you engage me in a way where you respect my humanity, but you also feel that there's information that I should be privy to, um, to make me become a better person, then yeah, I'm going to accept it. Because I feel like you have also my interest at heart. You know, and also I want to become a better person, so I'm open to it. Right, right. But if you're telling me that and also telling me that you ain't shit, if you're telling me to practice empathy and you're not being empathetic to what I got going on, you know, whether, you know, is good reason to, that's, that's where my conflict lies. Yeah, yeah, but would you understand that in a white construct concept, uh, context? Meaning that we tell white folks all the time, don't get defensive. Don't lean into your defensiveness. Like, just take responsibility, take accountability. If you're doing racial justice work, defensiveness is defeating to the cause. You can understand it in that way, but you can't understand it in a gender construct. You know what? But even even with uh, white, even with racism, I have friends that I've confronted them. You know, I confronted them right. with, about their racism. And... Um, and I've always thought that the best way to confront them with that is to like have a sit down, usually over a cigar. It's like, yeah, bro, like what you did there, like you're, that's bias, that's prejudice, you know? And that's always been me. I don't know. It's because, you yeah, know, yeah. you know, I mean, been... we have to get back to civil discourse. Right, right. We do. Yeah. We do. But I, I think I don't want that to undermine validate, valid anger. If okay. that makes sense, right? right? And right. so when someone is reacting, they are reacting mm-hmm. to probably like a, a number of incidents that created harm. Right, right. Um, and so you could see it. You could see it as one of two things, right? I'm going to get defensive. I'm going to back into a corner. Or, which I've been guilty of in, in other ways. Um, or you could see it as an opportunity to be an authentic relationship, which is why I always go back to that. Whenever someone calls you out, it is because they want to be an authentic relationship mm. with you. If people could start seeing it from that lens and removing like the personal sting and saying, right. what an honor that you're calling me out mm-hmm. because you're teaching me how to value and respect you. Mm. And you're telling me that you want to be in an honest relationship with me. Right. This all has to be about authentic relationship. Right. And so, I, again, if you make that shift in perspective, you might be better able to then receive critical feedback. Mm-hmm. That's not always nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, and I'm not saying that we don't need to be engaged in civil discourse, because I do think we need more of that across the country. But I, again, I'm always weary of, of leaning into that as an only um, when that then puts a priority and a value over uh, anger. Mm. Because the reality is we would not have had the civil rights movement had it not been for anger. Right. And it had it not been for folks just saying, you are racist. This mm-hmm. system is racist. This right. is a racist construct. That anger was the catalyst for a rapid fire change in the 60s. So that's why I'm like, there's it's an and. There's value to it. And, yeah, we need to figure out how we have civil discourse. Mm-hmm. But civil discourse shouldn't come at the cost of someone else's pain. Like, it shouldn't be prioritizing. Civil discourse over something, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you for that. And um, I think... 
actually, I don't think because I don't know what's going on. I know what's happening in my circles, and uh, the conversation uh, is getting a, a bit more thorough, a bit more detailed. I love it. A bit more personal. Um, how we show up in this world, how we show up in settings, how we show up in families, how we show up in the workspace with our with our you know women, female counterparts, you know, if I, if you will. Um, <laughs> and Me Too has has done something to accelerate that conversation right. and dialogue. For right? sure, for sure. You know, whether it's out of fear, right? Uh, you know, or whether it's because it's made it known to, to some men the same way these recent uh, police brutality cases have made it known to white folks that, you know, there's something really wrong with the criminal justice system with implicit bias. Um, I think the same thing did, you know, happen for, for men where they realize, like, wow, there are sexual harassment cases that are happening here. And, um, and no, I cannot use, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, she's a part of my same culture. Like, she's, she's Dominican or she's Puerto Rican. Right. We, we hug each other. We give each other kisses on the cheek when we see each other. No, like, this is a culture that you have to understand, and um, especially within a business setting, but also hopefully that transfers into your personal lives. It's an interesting conversation and it has to keep going. And men have to keep, you know, sitting down with one another and also taking accountability for where they fucked up in their lives. Absolutely. You know, because, you know, a lot of us were raised looking at young men who were acting shitty to, to women and them getting away with it. So right. we thought in our minds, oh, like, okay, like if you want to get the girl, you have to be that shitty of a person. And, you know, we've had to, like, unlearn that over the years. Right. But at some point, you know, you've had to learn it. Right. Like, at some point, you have to stop unlearning and just learn how to become a better person, how to become a better support system, how to not hijack ideas, you know, yeah, at mansplaining. work. Mansplaining. Yeah, I'm like, are you going to tell me what I just thought? Right, like, right, it's right. Wild. Well, you know, I'm probably yeah. doing that right now with you. Everything that I just said, you probably just said it. So I, I'm probably doing it right now. I don't know. I have to process that. I don't yeah, know what maybe. just happened. No, but I, but I think you're. I, <laughs> no, I think you're right. What I appreciate about what you're doing is you're owning your own journey and process. Yeah. Um, and I think men do need to be having more conversations amongst themselves mm-hmm. about it. And I, I, I also want to say, and educating the young boys around them about it, right? Because, like we said, if so you are the role model in the in in the gateway, then. How you also treat women influences what young men do and see. Right. Um, the other thing I think, too, about this particular point in conversation that I think is, is, is interesting. Um, yeah, because I could, I could talk about this one, actually, for a while. I think the idea of when you... And this is a working idea. And I think James Baldwin... That interview with Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin where they're talking about gendered relationships in their community and Nikki Giovanni is challenging James Baldwin to say, why when you come home do you treat me differently than you treat those white folks out Mm. there? And James Baldwin, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the whole thing, but in response says, because this is the moment, the space that I get to like release. Exactly, yeah. Right? And she's like, but why would you treat the person who loves you the most in that way? Mm-hmm. And I, and in that interview, you saw James Baldwin be challenged by Nikki Giovanni. 
And she was right. We tend to treat the people we love the most, sometimes in the most harmful ways, because we think they're not going anywhere. That is unhealthy. And that's how we get and we maintain unhealthy patterns from previous relationships. To be in authentic relationship and partnership requires a tremendous amount of healing work mm-hmm. of self and in partnership. And I, I, I didn't learn that until I came out of the relationship. Mm. Um, that I was projecting all of my pain and trauma onto that person to attain some form of power. Mm. And I think men do this too, right? Yeah. And that power made me feel good temporarily, but it never fixed the real issue because the, the real issue was internal. But if I could even demonstrate some form of power over, it felt good for a moment. It was instant like gratification in an unhealthy way. And I think men do this too. And then I think about this as men of color. I am oppressed by this system. They do not fully value me. And so therefore, how do I create a situation where I feel like I have some control? Right. And so then I engage in uh, relationship dynamics, particularly if you're heterosexual, right, in this context, with women where I almost sub-oppress mm-hmm. that woman to make myself feel better. Right. And Paulo Freire talks about this in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Be weary of the oppressed who becomes the oppressor because that kind of power over is intoxicating. And you can apply that to any construct. In intimate relationships, again, Sometimes it's the place where we act out our all of our trauma, all of our needs. Yeah, yeah. And I think the cure to that is just to understand that you are powerful without seeking power from another person. Power over. Power over it's another particularly person. Particularly a type, yeah. Yeah. I think, though, that requires a lot of self-love. Self-love and, you know, and also, uh, but self-love requires a lot of honesty and coming to grips with, what you feel and what takes over you and what triggers you. And I think, again, we have to do the work from, and when I say we, I'm talking about, you know, young men, you know, men that want to be fathers. We have to do the real work of, like, raising our sons to, to you know, be able to express themselves so that they don't hold it in. And this is the way they exert their emotions because they don't know how to grapple with it. They don't have that muscle, that muscle of, of, Letting go of, right. of of saying what they feel over the years, right? Um, and what that turns into is it turns into male violence and male dominance, right? So, um, because Absolutely. because you haven't come to grips with who you truly are, and you've allowed the physical world to define that for you, so. Absolutely. And I think this though speaks to the gender roles too that we talked about earlier. Is right. It's the idea that. Women are allowed to be more vulnerable and tapped in emotionally, and men are not. Right, yeah. You know, look. And men are not. Patriarchy, um, you know, patriarchy, uh, many folks, you know, whether it's men or women, many folks are complicit. You know, there, there, there are many yeah. mothers that raise their sons yeah. to, you know, solely be providers and, yeah. and be satisfied with that limited self-conception right. as the provider. Um, you know, I remember when I... You know, not to go off topic, but I remember when I was uh, at the Queen's DA's office for a bit um, and they told me that most, you know, this was told to me by a senior person 
uh, a woman senior person, and she was like, well, most men tend to leave the DA's office because they actually want to provide for their families, uh, which is why you see more female prosecutors. And again, like, I'm not saying that she was imposing her beliefs on me, but her telling me that just reinforces this world of like gender norms like yes I'm supposed to take a different path because of my gender I'm supposed to be a certain way because of my gender you know um, some of us face a lot more pressures in our own families because we're boys you know how does that translate in how we view the world how we treat women you yeah, know? yeah absolutely and I want to want to challenge you a little on something mm -hmm. To not use the language of female. Right. Well, I wanted to ask male. you. That's what I was trying to imply. Like, is it a, you know, like female counterpart, male counterpart? I think it's women and men now. Women um, counterpart and then male um, counterpart. I mean, it's changing it a bit, right? right but I, I just think can't keep up. It's just I so know much. because female and male gets into a biological like freedom. What people decide. Right. So now with uh, cisgendered right. and right, we're trying to be more uh, inclusive right. of folks who don't fit into that construct. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I hear you. Um, yeah, I think it's there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work, and I also think that men have to heal. You have to do the personal healing work, heal in community, and then you have to heal with women. Uh, meaning again, and we're talking not even beyond the heterosexual context, right? I think in general, how do we heal and repair relationships? Um, I say that to say that when you enter a partnership, and this again, this was something I had to learn the hard way. Um, I could have done a lot of my own work, which I think I've been doing for the past six to seven years that I've been single, seven years now. Um, but when it's not until I enter partnership that only certain trauma will be triggered mm -hmm. because that it becomes the most intimate expression of a relationship that I will have right. outside of the relationship with myself. So I might not even know that something is there until I enter that relationship. Mm -hmm. And then that requires that I continue to commit to my own healing, but then I'm also healing in relationship. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know you have to go. This conversation is getting I even know. better than before, but um, I know you have to go. So, but before you leave us, and, you know, this was great. You know, I, I hope we have a part two very soon. Yes, no, let me know. This was good. This was good. Yeah. Um, before you go, if you could just tell us, like, who, you know, because we spoke about, you know, we spoke about posse, we spoke about role models towards... Uh, you know, in your high school career, but talk, you know, I want you to talk to me about like if there were books that really motivated Ooh, you yeah. or, or, or folks that you read about, whether, uh, you know, dead or living, that really painted this picture for you that you can achieve anything despite your circumstances. Absolutely. Um, I, I always look to uh, Audre Lorde. Mm. I think Audre Lorde. I think there are a lot of black women who really have have paved the way to be honest okay um and and i think we need to start acknowledging that more to name how black women have have shifted the political landscape time and time again and the dialogue time and time again even that conversation between nikki giovanni and james baldwin mm -hmm. right powerful poignant conversation um so audrey lord maya angelou I think Maya Angelou's writing can be very inspirational. Audrey's Lord writing was very much about, uh, to me, 
uh, was personal, very raw and mm. real, but also very much about systems. Right. I love bell hooks. I think teaching to transgress is is one of my favorite books. Um, Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm. uh, I think is is I have that book. I think I have like all these marks and tabs on the pages still. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite. Um, try to think now, because I read now. I read a lot of articles, like a lot more, to to support and sustain the work. Right. Um. What was the last? Was there someone aside from a book? Was there someone that you just looked to, and and said, you know what, that person. You know, like many of us had either a Barack Obama or maybe a Michael Jordan. Or... Ah, that's a good question. So one other book I will name, This Bridge mm-hmm. Called My Back, okay. uh, Radical Writings by uh, Women of Color. Mm-hmm. In college was one of my Bibles as a, as a woman of color, developing more into that identity. Um, loved it. It was personal, lots of personal reflections mm-hmm. about navigating the system at the time. Then one person, honestly, this is so wild. I, my grandmother will always be uh, a source of inspiration, um, a tremendous amount of love. And uh, she taught me how to love people regardless of who they, who, where they've been mm. and what they've done. Mm. That is a lesson I will always carry with me. Um, outside of that, like public persona, I think growing up, this is probably gonna open a can of worms but the Cosby show mm. Clara Huxtable was like the, the, the whole family unit right mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. of deep inspiration to me but Clara Huxtable was like powerful dynamic smart had a career she mm-hmm. held her own I mean she was fictional right right but what she, I mean I, got, I just got so much life from from that show and, and her as a, as a woman mm. uh, kind of owning her life and what she wanted. And then in real life, I mean, because that was you told me when I was younger. As an adult, you know, honestly, I don't know that I, I put anyone on that pedestal anymore because we're all human. Mm-hmm. And the minute I create a pedestal, I'm actually creating a, a dynamic where someone has power over me. Mm. Uh, so I don't do that anymore. I admire people. I deeply respect them. Michelle Obama, yeah. Barack Obama, you know, like Oprah. A deep amount of respect. Um, Edward James Olmos. Like, you know, there are folks, again, deep amount of respect for. But I don't know that I, I would say um, I put them on that pedestal, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I'm sure, you know, if you ever wanted to get into a second... Trade, I think book dealer should be one of those. Okay. Because you sold those books. <laughs> I'm about to just get all of them tomorrow. But uh, again, thank you so much. Where can we find you? Social media? Uh, yeah, 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 yes. Uh, social media. I'm trying to think what my social media is. D- Diana. We have a, my, a few, I, have a I think. Yeah. Instagram is Diana Noriega underscore co, C-O. Or no, is it... That's my Twitter. Okay. Okay. Diana Noriega underscore co is my Twitter. And then my Instagram is Diana Noriega dot NYC. Mm. I knew it was something like that. 
Here we go. I know. Thank you for always bringing your high vibrations. Thank you you for your thoughtful and insightful discourse always. It never fails. I always appreciate our conversation. And I always appreciate that you're open. Yeah. something different. Well, you know, and you too. Today you shared a lot with us and we appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate you. Until next time. Appreciate you too.